Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, joined always by Jamie. Hello, welcome. <laughs> welcome, how are you doing, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh, Thursday, October 14th, uh, it 2021, is, it is. Yeah, for anyone listening in the future. But yeah, uh, we're getting back in the groove of things. Um, I now have a stable place to record. We've recorded a few episodes. You have a home. You have a home. I have a home as well, actually. Rather than a sofa. <laughs> that is a, a big life change to be honest <laughs> it's a big upgrade um, but yeah um, man Oslo is really fun and uh, for anyone following the Twitter you'll hopefully soon be able to see the first pictures in a long long time of your two co-hosts actually in the same place oh. because Jamie's coming to Oslo six, six pound flight yeah that's a little crazy but uh, and for all the uh, anti-flyers out there who maybe have even listened to our episode with uh, Flight Free UK. Um, unfortunately, yeah, going from the UK to Oslo by any means other than flying is uh, close to impossible. I've checked trains, I've checked boats. It's just not doable uh, money-wise or time-wise. But, um, but yeah, super exciting. Uh, it's going to be great. We might do a little live episode here if we Ooh, can yeah. with, uh, I was thinking if we can get Alexander Dunlap on, that would be cool. Or someone else from the department here at Zoom. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, without further further ado, uh, today we, uh, as, as you all maybe know from following our Twitter, hopefully you do, uh, at Rising of the Tide, we today have uh, Jola Ajibade, who is a uh, assistant professor of geography at Portland State University, a faculty fellow of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions at PSU, an affiliate for Black Studies. Jola, thank you so much for coming, for giving us your time. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me, Skanda. Not at all. Not at all. I, we usually start by going through someone, our, our researcher, our guests, um, history and, and kind of what they've done, their career. Um, but maybe just before we get into that, I, I do want to ask you, how do you do it all? Because you, you seem to be ex- like having an insane amount of things that you're doing at the same time from seeing your kind of, uh, career profile on your website you're a uh, young scientist fellow in integrated research on disaster risk program in china you're an affiliate member of the mcgill sustainability system initiative um we know we've mentioned your assistant professorship your, your affiliation for black studies you're also a research fellow with earth system governance in sweden i mean wow thank you so much for giving us your time i mean it's it, it must be mm-hmm. hectic yeah absolutely and i should say i'm also now a fellow with enca so that's the national <laughs> research, yeah, Institute for Atmospheric Research. So, um, yeah, it's that's a big question, and that's the question I ask myself every day. How do you pull? How does anyone, not even just me, any faculty? How do we manage the expectations? We're almost supposed to be like a superhuman, mm-hmm. you know. Where you do have, remember, I do have a family. I have a little one, <laughs> yeah. six year old, and she likes to play all the time, and I want to play too. So that's always top of mind for me. But also, you know, there is the teaching expectations. There's the research, which obviously um, it's many of the areas that people have come to know the work that I do. 
And there is also the service expectations where you're supposed to serve the city, uh, give talks, uh, mentor people, uh, both students that you work with, but also students elsewhere outside of, uh, even outside of America. And so some of the things that you saw on my website, actually, I do far more than that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think it's I a watered down version. It is a watered down <laughs> version of what my life has become. And, and I think that I've come to realize, even as an academic, that uh, the more you're successful, the more you're rewarded with work, with more work. Uh, <laughs> mm. Yeah, but uh, there's a friend of mine who we've been doing a couple of work together, um, yeah, Sidas. And when I met her and we started some projects around managed retreat, what, one thing she said was like, you know, when I said, oh, we have to do this, well, she's like, it's fun, let's do it, you know. And so I've started to think about work, what I used to call work. I've started to think about them more in this sense of fun. You know, it's something I would probably, most of them I would do anyways, even if I wasn't paid to do them. <laughs> so once, you know, you, you have that mindset that this, this, this area of work or the things that we're doing is important, is making, hopefully would be making the lives of everyone, including myself better and possibly the next generation, you know, how do we deal with a variety of challenges we're seeing, whether it's economic crisis or climate crisis or social injustices, and you see yourself as somebody, you know, as a tiny speck in the midst of all of this chaos, but trying to at least uh, advance how we can think of change within that chaos, then it's worth it for me. And so, yes, I don't sleep well every night. Sometimes it's just four hours of sleep. That's true. Um, yes, I'm often working on four or five papers and sometimes I write uh, emails where they are full of errors because I'm thinking about five things at the same time. <laughs> That's also true. But I, you know, I've come to, um, uh, you know, accept some of the flaws that I have. Like, you know, it's hard to do them all. So you make some mistakes, you know, but you learn from your mistakes. But the point is the intention is the right intention. At, at least yeah. my, for me, it's the intention that, you know, I want to make a difference in the world, however small. And I'm doing that through the work that I do in academia. And so, and the work is also rewarded in the sense that we see some results, however small, but we're seeing some results. So, yeah. <laughs> Workload is worth the sense of purpose it gives, I guess. Yeah, so yeah, that sense of purpose. Yeah, mm. it just gives you a sense of satisfaction as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I have to say, your um, the, the way the path that you took is definitely something to note as well, because you you started the bachelor in philosophy in Nigeria, and then a master's in international law in Costa Rica, um, which holds a very dear place in my heart, Puerto Viejo, uh, personally. And I know you went on to do a PhD in geography, environment, sustainability in Canada. Like that's a big uh, kind of, a stra- not a strange, but like a, a very hectic, again, hectic path to, to take. Uh, and then philosophy, international law, geography. What was the kind of driving motivation between those? And also, I guess, did you see yourself going into environmental issues from the get-go? These are great questions. And, you know, it's interesting, even though they look like they are disparate disciplines and, you know, it looks like I'm doing different things. Actually, the core of it all has always been the same issue. Uh, When I went into philosophy as an undergrad in Obafemelo University in Nigeria, I didn't quite choose philosophy out of my own volition. Uh, We had the system in Nigeria where you when you want to apply to universities, you do this exam. It's called JAM. 
<laughs> so it's joint admission matriculation board where we all take the exam. You have to get a certain grade. And then we also have a system where it's um, sort of like a quarter system. So even if you met the grade, there is a quota for the northern northerners, there's a quota for the southerners, and there's a quota for um, people from the east. And so the ways in which universities then decide who gets into what program uh, is based on that jam and based on that quota system. And I wanted to study law, not philosophy. But for some reason, I didn't get into study law. But what I why I wanted to study law is what is important, not so much the law itself. It's mm-hmm. really about how do we advance social justice. I was living in a country where uh, the military regime under the Abacha uh, government was so repressive. Uh, there were struggles with poverty. There were struggles with, you know, having access to job. Unemployment rate was high. Um, crime rate was high. It was just really a chaotic situation. And for me, I saw law as an instrument to change the society. And I thought, oh, if I could get into the law, I can challenge the government. I can, you know, change the system one way or the other, advocate for people. But then I didn't get in it. And then I was trained in philosophy and I challenged it. Like I didn't want to study philosophy, but now I am happy that I did because I learned so much that even law itself is very limited in some ways in changing society because there is the political issues. And those who make the law are not necessarily, well, they're smart people, but it doesn't, you can have situations where law may not be moral. You can have immoral laws. And so, Having, you know, you know how it is that somehow, whether it's God or the universe, however people want to think about it, you know, really moved me into that philosophy area, which I think opened my mind beyond what the law can do and helped me to see what is happening in the social sphere and the uh, in the political sphere, in the scientific sphere, and how change is interrelated. And law is not just it's just one instrument; it's not the only instrument. And so I ended up studying philosophy. And even when I finished, I was still thinking what I was like, but because I was still desirous of studying um, uh, um, social justice issues, that's why I went into international law and human rights. So you can see that there is still that, yeah, even yeah. even though from philosophy. So, And then in, in, uh, in geography, which was what I did for my um, PhD, Geography Environmental Studies, that's actually an interesting thing uh, because my aspect of my work still also really focused on social justice issue, but it was also a personal issue that led me to geography and environmental studies. And these had to do with my, I have a brother or had a brother then who had cancer. And I, w- I went to McGill to do a program. It's called the Soviet program. And what I proposed to do in the program was really to think through how we can use the instruments of human rights to challenge corruption which was really very prominent in Nigeria and it still is and so while I was there that was my proposal I got into the program which was great mm-hmm. but then I visited my brother who was here in the United States in Atlanta and he had been battling cancer for three years and he had said to me that you know what are you, what are you doing in Canada and I was like oh I'm doing this human rights and corruption research you know and it's, we're gonna fight things in Nigeria we're gonna shake things up whatnot and I said yeah, yeah that's important but he's like not to belittle the, the issue of corruption as a big issue, he just said, you know, if people wanted to stop being corrupt, they can. You know, he just used that language. But what he was trying to say was, 
we have a bigger problem at hand. And for him, the problem was the degradation of the environment, the pollutions that we were seeing, all of the toxicity that was really affecting human body that even you know, to date, some people, we don't know why cancer occurs. We know it's the cell in people that really changes and become cancerous, but we don't know some of those things that people breed in that really just changes the cell within people, right? And so he, you know, it was this one of this good guys, you know, when, when you say someone like, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, <laughs> like, you know, he goes away, he's supposed to be, and then you, you, wake, you wake up one day, you're 30 years old, and they announce you, you have, you have cancer, and that was like a death sentence, and, and so he said, you know, why don't you look at the environment as an area of study, because there's so many areas in environmental uh, context that we still don't understand how they affect not just us as human, how they affect other species and also how it's changing the climate. And so I said, okay, um, yeah, I'm interested in corruption, but I think this environmental issue, yeah, it's a big issue. It's just just a lot of space for a lot of people to come in. And even at the time I was thinking about environmental issues and, and even climate change issues, there were fewer Africans working on this topic. Yeah. And certainly even in the context of Lagos and Nigeria, there were very few of us. And so I thought, okay, but I don't have a background in, in environment. I don't have a background in climate change. So I decided to go do a PhD to sort of start all over to understand why is the environment important. <laughs> <laughs> because I got that it was important from a personal angle in relation to my brother. But beyond mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you know, thinking about some of the pollution in my country with oil companies, those mm -hmm. were big issues for us, right? And so I started making those connections, you know, between all the oil pollution that is degrading the environment, killing the fisheries, affecting people, causing cancer, but also with what's going on globally in terms of climate change. And so I decided I was going to study um, climate change issues, which was why I eventually enrolled in, uh, in geography department to study environmental studies and climate change. So, so the journey is still the same, but it's just that it's broadened up from just the social justice, which has to do with relations between people, to also mm -hmm. thinking about uh, um, what I would call... Um, restorative justice or eco-restorative justice where we're also mm -hmm. thinking about the relations of human to non-human to the atmosphere to water to uh, other species and so the core is the same it's really how can we live harmoniously with one another but also how can we live harmoniously with all of our um, other species which if you're an indigenous person you say they are brothers and sisters as well because we share the earth together and so that's sort of my journey. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I owe my brother a lot of thanks. <laughs> and uh, bring, bringing this to your research, like your kind of unique focus is was what made one, one of the reports I read so interesting. Can a future city enhance urban resilience and sustainability, a political ecology analysis in eco-Atlantic city, Nigeria? When, when I read it, it was, I was impressed because it wasn't just an analysis sort of in, you know, economic ter kind of detached economic terms about the the costs that you know perhaps unforeseen costs and risks. It's, it 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 does have a focus on sort of um, the social injustice of the situation. And and I've actually done another research related to that advancing same similar idea in the case of Manila because I see same issues going on in Manila, Philippines. But I'll speak to the Lagos example that you've mentioned. Uh, and so this this uh, paper you talked about really uh, evolved from my PhD research. So I, I went back to Lagos studying the impact of um, flooding on people, on their housing, on women in particular as well. And I was also trying to understand what are the bigger 
uh, um, approaches that the city is taking to address impacts of climate change, what are the projects that is being implemented in the name of climate change, and who is benefiting or being disenfranchised by this project, which is meant to address flooding and storm surges, particularly in that part of Lagos, which is the Victoria Island. And so when I went there, you know, I spoke to a variety of people, including some of the planners and some of uh, the experts working on that uh, in that area. And obviously you have to speak to the community because when I went there, there were people living there. Right now, there are no flood people there anymore. It's just the structure and all they're building. But the first time I was there, there was this community living in the strip between the, where Equandland City is being built right now and the lagoon. And so you have this... Um, it's in the Kuramo area. You have their low income. Uh, typically, they just live there because they can't afford to live elsewhere. And they work in some of the industries around that area. So they work in whether it's the hotels, they help to clean the hotels, they help to clean people's homes. And, and that's how they make their living. And so when that project was, there has been a lot of issues in Lagos. Let me put it, let me backtrack a little bit. Number one, Lagos is the city that is exposed to uh, impacts of climate change, whether you're thinking about flooding, sea level rise, storm surges, we get it all. Sometimes it happens together where you have a heavy precipitation. At the same time, you also have an ocean, ocean surges. And so the ocean surge and the precipitation could happen at the same time and all of the city would get flooded, not only that side of Lagos, not only the island, but also the entire city. And that happened a couple of times, even when I was back in 2011 and 2013, that happened. And so when I went there, I was speaking to people when I went to the Victoria Island area, I was speaking to the community there and said, oh, they are building this project. What does it mean for you? And one of the issues for people is that, number one, yes, they recognize that the ocean surge is a problem. But then they also recognize that the Atlantis city has been it's been built and proposed at the time was not only going to displace them. It wasn't necessarily as far as they were concerned going to address all of the problems with flooding. It's just really also going to shift the erosion to other parts of the city that currently were not facing erosion. But again, uh, if you look, if you remember what I wrote in that um, paper, while it seemed as though the project was really, you know, to address flooding, there was also the other elements where uh, one of the governor at the time, Governor Tinubu, had traveled to um, Dubai and has seen all of these artificial islands that was being built and there is this idea between him and people running the SNL, um, S-E-N-E-L, that's the South Energy Nigerian Limited Company, which is in charge of this structure, the Aquanlada City. He decided, oh, why don't we do the same thing in Lagos? You know, it'll be fun. And it would also address um, uh, ocean surges and flooding. And But then, you know, the the low income community did not feature in that discussion mm-hmm. <laughs> and where they were going to go. The old idea is, you know, we just need to make a policy and say we don't want communities around or we don't want um, storm communities around the ocean surge, uh, sorry, around the ocean area. And so obviously that was written into the Lagos policy that we're going to retreat people, we're going to resettle people. Most of the people they claimed they were resettled were not actually resettled, they were displaced because there are two different, mm-hmm. there's a difference between resettling people and displacing people. Right. So a lot of people lived uh, around the Equandlana city now in 2010, 20, 20, 2005, some of them were displaced, some of them were also displaced in 2012. And they were displaced in a very uh, violent way where you had these bulldozers coming and you had you know, government-backed uh, um, police folks come in and, yeah, they literally uh, pushed people out. 
of that area. And there are other structures. You, I don't know if you're aware of them. There are other new structures, not quite Eco Atlantic City, but also are all around the lagoon that is being built. And that also happened in the same way where people were displaced with bulldozers and gone. So it's sort of become um, like a trend. You know, they want to build this big structure to address resilience is what they call mm-hmm. um, what they claim to be uh, to protect the city for climate change. But then the, the the poor typically have to pay the cost of displacement in that sense. And then the question is, you know, do these projects that they are building does it really address? Uh, um, the impact of climate change does really resolve flooding. Those areas actually still get flooded, and some of the structures that they are building oh. in the area also got flooded. I, I mean, the videos are on on YouTube, so you know anyone can look it up. So, so that's yeah. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> job well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you wonder whether it's a project for capital accumulation or if it's a project really for adaptation. And you can begin to see that it's more about capital accumulation and less about climate adaptation. Do you know um, if amongst those uh, low-income groups that were displaced that um, there is general sort of acceptance or um, rejection of the um, the, the uh, dominant narrative that is, you know, it, it's 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 for the uh, ultimately uh, good um, purposes like adaptation and protection of these groups? I think that's a great question because, you know, there were a variety of discourses around this issue. And you must remember, and I did during this work and even to today, the Eco-Atlantic City is still being sold to people as a project that really matters for the city, not only in terms of the resilience side of it, but in terms of the economic side of it, mm-hmm. that it's going to allow for more businesses and that the funding from the businesses will trickle down to people. And so when people hear that, if you're a poor person, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, ultimately this may give me some job or somehow our city will benefit and will benefit all. So there were people who bought into those narratives and thought, okay, even if I'm being displaced, if the city is going to be better off well maybe we'll support it but can they give us an alternative home it's what people really want it's not that everybody were um, uh, rejecting there were some people who felt if it's going to help make the city more economically buoyant why not but there were a lot more people that rejected especially those who were who felt the visceral the displacement you know who really were there there were a lot more of those people who rejected that project uh, there were um, a number of housing advocates as well who knew that people were displaced who also uh, wrote against that project. But, you know, because they are the less powerful of, of the variety of groups uh, involved in this project, the project went ahead anyway. It didn't really matter whether people uh, rejected it or whether they felt um, they were displaced uh, multiple times. Uh, the project has gone on and it's still going on, uh, quite frankly, it's still being constructed. The whole idea was that it would be finished in 2016, but I think maybe because of budgetary issues and I don't know if COVID also impacted the the, mm-hmm. um, the rate of the construction. There are parts of the construction that are completed, but there are still a lot of other areas that are still under construction to date. But yeah. yeah. A little like kind of throwback, I guess, that I had when I was reading your, your that paper on, on Lagos was... Um, was uh do you have you ever read um the shock doctrine by naomi klein oh yes yes yeah anyone listening one of my all-time favorite books um definitely i, I think safe to say a book that transformed me or at least set me on the sort of political path that i am on today that um, makes two of us 
Yeah, <laughs> great to hear. <laughs> yeah, um, she for for anyone who hasn't read it, she Naomi Klein uh, outlines in a, in a very very briefly. She out. In, I mean, I'm going to be very brief. The book is quite big. Um, she outlines the way in which companies, governments, political actors, in a sense, utilize crises as an opportunity to basically put in. Uh, policies or or to make kind of political moves which would not succeed if they're if people were watching the scene let's say right so it's like there's a fire in the theater people are watching the theater they're not looking at the scene so you can do whatever you want on the scene it's that kind of idea very brief uh, <laughs> summarization um, but yeah this this research that, that, that you've done definitely like harked back a little bit to, to this for me at least because I felt like I was rethinking about all these stories of hers from uh, Sri Lanka from uh, Hurricane Katrina in, in Mississippi I think it was um, do you see a kind of shock doctrine being applied here but with a mix of environmental issues in Nigeria at least Oh, I see it in a lot of places where I've worked. So the Lagos being an example of disaster capitalism, uh, to, to quite use the word um, of Naomi Klein, where uh, the disaster was there, the ocean surge happened, the old city got flooded. And so when they decided to start building that project, it seemed like, oh, it's going to help. But obviously, like you said, the crisis becomes an opportunity for capitalists to come in and take over and really just implement a project that they've always wanted to do. The other one that I'm seeing, and the paper is on that review right now, I can't wait for it to be held though. It's really how um, environmental issues is also fitting into surveillance of people and and how, yeah, how that, you know, they're using environmental issues and climate change issues and disaster risk management to also advance, you know, the surveillance of communities. But then they had to put in all of these monitoring cameras that was meant to be monitoring floods, but those mm-hmm. cameras were also monitoring people. Oh, and wow. then, okay. yeah, it's a yeah, fascinating, yeah. fascinating work that, you know, the Manila case. And, and obviously this happened on the, the Duterte government, and is a this a paper of, that you've, uh, is one of your papers? Oh, yeah, yes, one of great. my papers. Um, we, nice. You know, it takes a while for these journals to get this thing done. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm I'm really dying and waiting for it to get out just because, you know, these connections, people have not made those connections. And, and I saw that happening in Manila. And I don't think it's only, I, I don't know if it's elsewhere, but it was very evident in the case of Manila. Mm-hmm. And what, what I framed in that paper is this idea of a resilient fix where resilience become a language where it, it can, or it's been used to fix a variety of problems. But the fix is really what um, David Abbey talks about in this case, where it's actually eating in a way to advance capital. But what I'm saying is not just the clear advancement of capital, like we saw in the case of Lagos, there is all of this machineries like, oh, you guys need more CCTV camera. There are companies benefiting from that CCTV camera. And there are companies benefiting from the sales of the data that is being collected. And then there is what the government ultimately does with the data and what the government decides can leave or shouldn't leave. It's just really fascinating. And, and I'm so proud of, um, I think, what's her name again? <clears throat> the lady that won the Nobel laureate this year, she's Maria. Yes, from uh, Rip. Hmm. What is Maria. it called? Her first name is Maria. Yes. The, is but the, the project that she leads is called Rip. Rip? I can't remember. I remember her last name. Because she's one of the few people that really stood up to, um, uh, to Duterte government, right? 
And mm-hmm. so she's been really standing up to, and, and really she wrote a book about how to stand up to a, uh, to a detector. And so it's just fascinating the work she's doing. And it's fascinating a lot of the challenges that is happening in Manila. And, and for me, because I studied the global South, so Lagos, Manila, when I saw, I was like, oh my God, this is a new trend, but it's happening. But people initially buy into some of these things because they think that it's really going to help protect them. Like, oh, yes, we need CCTV camera to see where which areas of the city gets flooded more, which one gets flooded less. But those sort of information can also be used by others for Mm -hmm. whatever reasons they want to use it for. And that's something that I saw in Manila and which was shocking to me. Um, But, yeah, going back to the issue of Lagos, we don't have CCTV cameras in Lagos yet, But we do see the same disaster capitalism uh, really taking over as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, something that I'm quite worried about for the UK being, I think the UK is still today the most watched um, country on earth in the sense of Not CCTV. China? I think it's still the, uh, it, it could be, but I, I'm, I remember reading about the UK being, and, and when you live in, in England, you realize as well, like, there are just CCTV everywhere. Mm. Um, and also just to, I, 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 I don't want to, to be rude uh, to Maria Ressa. She's a... The, Maria Ressa, yes. Maria Ressa is the, yes, Maria the yeah. Nobel Peace Prize winner for this year. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I really, I'm so interested in this securitization of, of the environment as well. Uh, there's a Biosec, yeah. amazing project going on. Um, uh, I think led by Rosaline Duffy, a really great researcher too. And they've done some work on that and they've talked to us about it as well. Um, I'm uh, Because I, I know that we're a little bit pressed for time, I'd love to go into that, but uh, maybe we can just put a pin on it and, and say mm-hmm. that maybe at some point we can uh, uh, have a episode two about the Manila stuff. I would love that. <laughs> I, I think Not that really. people will talk soon. I would yeah. definitely love to talk about it because... It just really advances our understanding in terms of what is really resilience. Uh, when we're planning for resilience, which kind of projects really qualifies as resilience and which kind of projects really aren't resilient, but they're just under this facade of resilience, but actually advancing the agenda of political actors. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to, bef- uh, before we kind of uh, start closing off or anything, I do want to quickly talk about your book. Uh, that you've just uh, finished co-editing um, with uh, AR Ciders uh, called Global Views on Climate Relocations and Social Justice, um, which is due to be published uh, next year. It's already year. out. It's already it's, out. Okay, yes. because I saw on the front page that published 2022 and I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's not 2022 <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's out. Uh, I was surprised they had 2022 there as well, but it's it's out. Um, the first chapter I think I sent to you. And so the first set of shipments is already has been ordered. Wow. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, it's, Thank uh, you. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, so nice. It's a feeling I one day strive to to get that that completion of a book that's definitely something well you start the edited ones you can start there they, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but yeah uh the, it's just from the the chapter that i i got to read that, that you sent us it, it looks um it looks fantastic it, it looks like i think a quite important kind of seminal work on on this kind of topic which doesn't get that much um publicity in academia i think 
And I want to just kind of touch on one notion that you uh, pointed out in that introduction, which was, uh, quote, retreat intersects with environmental justice. Could you potentially expand a little bit on that and the way that um, as you go on to write it, retreat intersects with environmental justice, but also with procedural justice and distributive justice? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, uh, what I have been doing, and I have another work, hopefully should be completed and out soon, if that, you know, a number of us have written about the relationship between retreat and environmental justice. I wrote a paper that was in 2019, looking at Manila and thinking about the relationship between environmental justice and retreat. Others are written about retreat and social justice. Some people are looking at retreat and um, restorative justice. And for me, I see that retreat intersect with a variety of justices or and not just one. So I'll speak to the environmental justice one. We do know even here where I am right now in the US that there is this co-location of where you have pollution, where you have uh, low-income people. And at the same time, those are areas where you also see challenges in terms of impacts of climate change, flooding, or in some cases it's drought, in some cases ocean surges. So we see this co-location of vulnerability and climate change impact. And this is the same area where people have limited um, power to make a decision about whether they can they want to stay there, they want to move there. So for me, retreat intersect with um, what you call procedural justice, right? Who makes the decision about where to stay, where to move, even when you're responding to impacts of climate change. But also if we decide, or if the society decide, or if the people in that any specific location decide they want to move, there is also the distributive justice, right? Because environmental justice touches on these two issues. In terms of the, the people making the decision on the environment, but also who is bearing the most burden. So if you think about a larger understanding of environmental justice, we're often thinking about who has, you know, who is exposed to the harm of these problems in the environment and who is gaining the benefits. And same way in times of retreat, there are hard decisions to be made, who is making the decisions, and when those decisions are made, who benefits from those decisions and who loses out. So in the paper that I wrote, and this I actually connected Lagos and Manila, and I saw that in all of the policy documents, there is this idea that, in, yes, um, people should retreat from areas around the ocean, from areas around riverine areas. It's, all, it's in the policy in Lagos, for instance. In Manila, it's not in the policy, but it's actually been done in practice. And so I was looking at who is making a decision to retreat people and who is being relocated in, in, in the sense, like who has been asked to retreat. And then what is the, and who gains when people retreat? So in Lagos and, and same in Manila, when people relocate from those ocean areas or ocean, yeah, ocean areas where people have the view and whatnot, it's the mostly the poor that has been asked to retreat and have been made to retreat or in some cases even displaced. And then you see new property developers come in and they view new, new property. And that for me is an environmental injustice, right? Where this is the home that people have. There are fishermen in this area. There are people whose livelihood are tied to the ocean side. And then you claim you're trying to protect them from the impact of ocean, but immediately they move. You begin to reclaim the area and then you build new structures. And so retreat in, in these two cases has helped to advance the agenda of powerful economic actors. While in the case of Manila, people, when they were asked to move or when they were moved, they were relocated to the outskirts of the city. So they were relocated to areas where they didn't have access to land, sorry, access to livelihoods, uh, schools. Um, they had housing, just you know, structures. And some of those houses were not even best of quality. In the case of Lagos, when people were relocated, they were moved, they were not moved, they were displaced. 
So there were no housing, no nothing. You know, you have to find your way. And so this is an injustice, you know, environmental injustice when you're thinking about retreat. But some of the other work I'm doing right now is looking at how other types of justice issues, and that's what we try to do in, in that book as well, how other types of justice issues intersect with uh, retreat. So we're looking at social justice, environmental justice, restorative justice, intergenerational justice as well. And then we're also looking at um, restorative justice. So, and then of course, you have to pay attention to recognition justice, recognizing people who have historically been marginalized uh, in decision-making, but also these are people who have, at least in the case of US, there are people who have lived in, you know, colonial settlers uh, areas. There are people, many of them have also faced redlining, which is where I'm walking right now. There are people who also are experiencing gentrification right now. So we have to recognize all of these problems that have stacked up for people. And when you're making the decision about retreat, their voices need to be heard in what to do, whether they want to move, where they want to move to, and how the process should be. And so part of the work where, part of the goal of the book is really to center the voices of people whose voices typically are not centered in discussions around retreat. Because a lot of the people who make decisions around retreat, they do it from a logistical perspective. And it's just, oh, you have to move people from point A to B. But it's not about moving people from point A to B. There's so much. Uh, and, and this can literally destroy a generation of families. Mm-hmm. Or if, it, if it's done right, it can protect families. And that's what we try to understand and really show the yeah. justice dimension and the injustice dimensions of managed retreat. Okay. Um, I think we definitely want to have you on again, though, because... I want to we'll... come on again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, want, we want to respect your time, but we definitely still uh, have uh, lots of questions. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, safe to say your research is absolutely indispensable and will become more so unfortunately as time goes on um, because i'm sure we're we're going to see kind of this uh, necessary climate mitigation come up time and time again and with the governments around the world that we have right now i don't think uh, they're going to be as uh, worried about environmental justice as uh, you uh, jamie and i are <laughs> But um, but yes, uh, Jola, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're going to end it here. And uh, I do want to quickly say also a big thank you to our Patreon uh, donors, um, because without you, we cannot put this show out. Uh, so it's a big, big, big help. And uh, yes, Jola, you're uh, welcome to uh, to come on any time <laughs> that you have free time. I know yeah. it's very hectic uh, to put out all this work. Um, but yeah, thank you again for the work you do and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure being here. And you you make it easy to just talk to you both. So thank you very much. Good. It's what, it's what we try. We try. Yeah, you make me very comfortable. So thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been Thank you. <laughs>